0: Tune your ear to wisdom and cry aloud for understanding. If you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. Welcome to Project Philippians, a deep dive into one of the richest treasure mines in Scripture. I'm delighted to have you join me today for another excavation into an amazing 2,000 year old book. I'm so excited to be back with you, my friend. Uh, just sitting here with my Bible open on my desk, imagining you sitting there with your Bible open on your lap, and uh, the two of us just studying the Word of God together. What an incredible privilege! And I'm excited about the opportunity to dig deep into this book because it's so life changing and uh, so powerful. So let's ask the Lord to do some of that life change today, shall we? Lord God, thank you. Thank you for this book. Thank you that. Though it was written 2,000 years ago in a totally different language, in a different country, on a different continent than I've ever been, Lord, these words still ring with the life of the Spirit of God. And Father, we want to we hear your word today. We, want, we don't want to just know it in our brain. We want to be moved by it, touched by it, changed and transformed. Lord, help us to be more like our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, as a result of reading these words today together in your name we pray thank you jesus amen all right so we have been studying a prayer for the last several sessions the prayer of the apostle paul as he's been praying for the philippians and what has he been praying for he's been praying that their love would overflow with knowledge and wisdom and discernment and today we get to almost the climax of his prayer, where he's revealing the reason that he's been praying, or, or maybe better yet, the goal and purpose of his prayer. He uses this word called hinna in Greek. Uh, this is the scholars call the hinna clause. Hinna in Greek means so that. He's praying all of these things, climbing on his knees day after day, praying for the Philippians, so that, verse 10, this is my prayer. That your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so you're able to discern what is best, so that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. Well, what do you know about that? He's praying that their love and knowledge and wisdom and discernment would grow so that their character might become blameless and pure. That's an interesting connection. And I got to be honest, I didn't really see that coming. Praying for people's love to grow so that they might be more holy. Hmm. There isn't an obvious connection between those two, at least um, at first glance when I first read it. Well, what is he talking about? And Well, in order to answer that question, the first thing we need to do is pull apart these two words, pure and blameless. If you've been listening to this podcast for very long at all, you know that's one of my favorite things to do is just to take a word and try to really understand what did it mean when Paul wrote it down. You know, these of course were written in Greek. So how do we know what any word in the Bible means? We can read it in our English versions, but how did the translators know what this word meant? The original Greek word for pure is ἁγνός. How can we discover what it means? Well, you can look it up in a Greek dictionary, I suppose. That's a good start, and you'll learn that it it means pure or sincere or unsoiled, unsullied. But how do the people who wrote the dictionaries know what it meant? Well, there's a number of things that, that that the language scholars do. One of the first things that they will do is they'll look in the context of this verse itself to try to understand from the context what he's talking about. And, of course, we see that he's praying that they may be blameless and pure until the day of Christ. Now, if you didn't know what those words meant before, you would know at least that there's some character quality that, that Paul wants to introduce into their lives or wants to grow in their lives. But what specifically is it? I want to keep digging. So, well, the next step would be to look at other places in Scripture where this word is used. Now, in this particular case, that's not going to be too helpful because it's only used one other place in the whole Bible, and that's in 2 Peter chapter 3, where he says in verse 1, Dear friends, this is now my second letter to you. I have written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to eilocrenes thinking. Our same word, eilocrenes. It's an adjective describing something that can shape your mind. Eilocrenes thinking. Well, that's giving us another clue about, but what it doesn't really tell us what kind of thinking this is, what kind of mindset this is that Paul wants us to have. Well, if the context of the other verses where it's located doesn't make the meaning of the word clear, one of the next steps that Greek scholars will often do is turn to what is called etymology, and that's just a fancy word for meaning breaking a word apart into its pieces and looking at the historical use of those pieces of the word. So in this case that's actually very interesting because the adjective ilocnēs is a compound word made up of two separate words, two separate nouns. The first part of this word is ila which is most often translated as sun or sunlight. And the second part of the word, crnēs, comes from the word to judge, judgment or judging someone. So if you put those two together, you get sun judged or judged by the sunlight. So the picture that I'm told that this word is used to describe is the behavior of ancient shoppers. Imagine a Jewish or Grecian woman going to the marketplace, going to the Agora on market day, searching for fabric to make clothes for her family. And she would go into one of those darkened market stalls and she would find some fabric And in order to find out if it was good fabric, she would take it to the window or take it outside and hold it up to the sun so that she could see clearly if there were any flaws or blemishes or stains on that fabric. And that is being sun judged. It's holding it up to the light so that you can see what is really there. Wow, that's what Paul is praying will take place in our hearts, that our character will be sun judged. That's a sobering thought. It reminds me of what Jesus said to John in the book of Revelation on the island when he said in 2.18, These are the words of the Son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire. And down in verse 23, he says, I want the churches to know that I am he who searches hearts and minds. He's holding up our heart. And he's searching us with blazing eyes, judging our hearts, looking for any flaw or stain on our character. The author to Hebrews says the same thing. In 4.13, when he says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Oh, man, friend, that's... Like I said, that's a sobering thought. We will be sun-judged someday. And Paul is praying that our character will be ready for that day, that we will be flawless and pure, judged by the light of the blazing fire of our Savior's eyes. Rather, when the Savior looks at my heart, he sees every impurity. And you know what? I want him to. Just like King David did when he first penned that famous prayer in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in me. And lead me on your everlasting path. That's what I want. Well, this word study is beginning to pay off, isn't it? We're getting a better idea of what this word means. But I think we can go even further. You see, the next step that Bible scholars will use to uncover the meaning of a word is to examine what's called the word family, the various parts of speech. In other words, ilokines is an adjective. But the noun form of the word is ilacronea, which happens to be used a few other times in the New Testament, particularly in Paul's letters to the Corinthians. He uses it at least three times. And in those verses, it is most often translated as sincerity, or in other words, a purity of motives. It's talking about your conscience, about your integrity, about your honesty. I want to look specifically at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, because There's a vivid picture here that really opened my eyes as I read it. In this passage, Paul is coming down kind of hard on the Corinthians because they had grown indifferent to their sin. An apathy had grown up towards sin in their church. In fact, they had become kind of proud about how tolerant they were of certain sins in their church. And so Paul has to rebuke them. And in order to do that, he uses this picture of yeast or leaven. Now, I'm sure if you're familiar with Jesus's teaching, he also often used yeast as a vivid spiritual illustration of sinfulness in our lives. So Paul uses the same picture here to describe the subtle, insidious effect of sin in our lives. So in 1 Corinthians 5, 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast— works through the whole batch of dough. Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. So Paul is saying just a tiny little bit of yeast will affect and reshape the entire loaf of bread. And in the same way, just a tiny little bit of sin will tarnish the entire soul. And then Paul takes this picture even further, and he goes back into the Old Testament, to an Old Testament tradition, and he says, He says, For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sanctified. Therefore, let us keep the Passover festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. That word sincerity is our word, alecuneia. But before I get to that, I want to unpack this picture that Paul is painting here. You see, in the Old Testament, in Exodus 12 and 13, God describes what the Israelites were to do on the week of the Passover festival. They were told to rid their homes of any leavened product, any bread that had yeast in it, and they were supposed to clean out their entire homes. In fact, a tradition grew up where one of the ways that they would celebrate the Passover is that they would go throughout their entire home with a lamp in hand, searching through every darkened corner for the tiniest crumbs of yeast in their home to make sure that their entire home was completely yeast-free. In fact, the Jews still do this today. They call it Bedekat Comets. And it's the tradition where they will send their children around the house with a, with a candle and a little spoon and a little feather. And uh, sometimes the, the parents will leave little crumbs of bread around the house so that the children can find those and sweep it up with their little dust feather and take the bread out into the yard and burn it there as a symbolic representation that their home is yeast-free. And so Paul is reminding his readers of this tradition of how to celebrate the Passover. But he's saying now we don't celebrate the Passover once a year because our Passover has already come and his name is Jesus. And the way to celebrate the Passover now is to search our hearts, every darkened corner of our hearts, and to remove the yeast of malice and wickedness and to replace it with the unleavened bread of alacrinea and truth purity of motives sincerity of heart and truth of life so inwardly and outwardly our hearts are purified that the way that we celebrate what jesus did for us by becoming our sacrifice is that we make every effort to rid our heart and soul of any last vestige of sinfulness so if i'm understanding this word correctly It means that Paul is praying that our hearts would be sun-judged and swept clean. Pure. It means spotless, flawless, stain-free, and unleavened by the least speck of sin. Mm. That seems like a tall order, doesn't it? How can that possibly be true in my life? Well, before I answer that question, we have to go to the next word, because Paul is about to double down and give us another description of the life that he wants us to have. So the second word in Philippians 1.10 that Paul uses to describe the goal of his prayer for the Philippians is, in in my version, is translated blameless, so that you may be pure and blameless. Okay, well, let's pull this word apart. So it's another adjective, of course, and the Greek word that Paul used was aproskopos. And this time we're going to start with etymology to cut this word open. And we're going to notice that the first letter in this word is A, or the Greek letter alpha. Now, you may know that the, when the Greek letter alpha is used as a prefix on words such as atheist or amnesia or apathy, that letter A always means the loss or lack or absence of something. And then the second part of this word is proskopos, which means stumbling or to stumble. So you put those together, aproskopos, and you get without stumbling or no stumbling. Now, that can actually be translated in a couple of different ways. It can either mean that I don't stumble or that I don't cause somebody to stumble. And it's used in both ways in different places in Scripture. Paul uses this word two other times besides the one we're looking at here, and he seems to use it in both senses. It, in Acts 24:16, he says, "I strive to maintain a blameless conscience, a, a proskeptos conscience before God and men. I want my conscience to be a I, w- I don't want my conscience to be tripped up." And then in 1 Corinthians 10:32, he urges his readers to cause no one to stumble to be a proscopos to Jews, Greeks, and the Church of God. So both inwardly and outwardly, I want to be stumble-free, and I don't want to cause anyone to stumble. But we've got to dig deeper here, because what does it really mean to stumble? What is this proscopos that Paul wants us to avoid? Well, the Greek verb is proskopto. And it literally means not only to stumble, but also to trip over something or even to stub your toe in the dark, which if any of you have ever experienced that, you know how unpleasant that experience can be. But interestingly, if you look through the different places where this verb is used, you'll notice that the theme of darkness is often coupled with stumbling. So for example, in Proverbs 4.19, we read, but the way of the wicked is like deep darkness, they do not know what makes them stumble. He's saying wicked people are stumbling because it's so dark they don't even know what their feet are tripping over. Jeremiah says something similar in chapter 13, verse 16. Give glory to the Lord your God before he brings the darkness before your feet stumble on the darkening hills. And even Jesus continues the same idea in John 11, verse 9, where he says, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. So if I'm understanding this word, it means tripping over something in the dark because you can't see it. Stubbing your toe, stumbling on the ground, falling over because you don't have the light to see where you're going. Isn't it interesting how both of these words, as we've dug into them, have had this theme of light and darkness involved? It's almost as if Paul is saying, I want your soul to be enlightened by the sun so that every flaw can be revealed, because if you are in darkness, you will inevitably trip and fall. So what Paul is praying for his friends And by extension for us, what I am praying for you and for me is that we would be men and women who live in the light so that the flaws of our hearts would be exposed, so that the blemishes of our soul could be removed. And so the stumbling stones of sinful temptation can be avoided. But you see, these things can only happen when we live in the light that shines from the face of our Savior Jesus. And that's Paul's heart. That's his prayer. He wants us to be sin-free, yeast-free, blemish-free, and stumble-free. But the question still remains, we still haven't answered it, how is this even possible? I mean, uh, How could Paul, does he really think that he could pray that our lives could truly be pure and blameless? It's it's almost ridiculous. I mean, I know my heart. I know I still have those sunspots that burn like dark storms on my soul. Is there any hope that I can live a pure and blameless life? Well, my friend, I know that that's a big question. And to be quite honest, it's going to take a whole nother episode to try to resolve the answer to that question. And we'll be looking at some things in the next verse that help. But in our last moments together, I just want to point out one clue that Paul leaves in this prayer. You see, I think it's very instructive that Paul doesn't pray for us to be pure and blameless. That's not the focus of his prayer. Go back a couple episodes and recall how he started this prayer. He's not praying that we will be pure and blameless. He's praying that our love would grow. My friend, that is a huge secret to victory in the spiritual life. You see, Paul isn't specifically praying to strengthen our temptation resistance muscles. Instead, he is praying that we would strengthen our love muscles. And he is praying that because he knows if we grow in love, then we will grow in purity and blamelessness. You know, he he communicates this same idea in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 1, when he says, Be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So you see that that theme of interwoven love where we are loved by God, and so we can imitate him by loving others just as Christ loved others and gave himself up for them. In other words, the great joy of being a Christian is experiencing the overwhelming love of God and letting it flow out of us in love for others. And what is the result? In that passage, he says in the next verse, but among you there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. And so I believe what he's saying is if if you want to avoid any hint of immorality or impurity or lust or greed or or unholiness in your life, then you need to live in this incredible fountain of God's love pouring into you and pouring out of you. Because when you learn to love others, you will desire like never before to live in purity and blamelessness before them and before God. God. It is the love of God flowing into us and out of us that drives us to become men and women of blazing purity and holiness. And it is going to be a lifelong journey, I know. And we're going to talk more about that journey and the end of that journey in our next episode. But for now, let me just pray for you. Lord God, Holy God, Savior of the blazing eyes, search us. Search us, O God, and know our hearts. Test us and know our anxious thoughts. See if there be any offensive way in us. And O Lord, lead us. Lead us in your beautiful, everlasting path. Jesus, only you can do this. Only you can accomplish this amazing miracle in our life to fill us and flood us with the love of God himself so that we will become men and women who walk in the light. Thank you for making it possible. Help us to believe that it's possible and help us to run towards it with all of our heart and soul. We love you, Jesus. Amen. It's been an honor to have you spend this time with me, but don't let it end here. May the words of God continue to resonate in your heart transform your life until the day you meet our glorious King and Savior face to face.